If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll be in verses 13 to 16 this morning. Uh, we're in this sermon, uh, in a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, taking a look at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 to 7 over the course of the next several months. And we just come out of a section of Jesus' teaching called the Beatitudes, where Jesus talks to us about the character qualities of citizens of his kingdom. And he begins to delineate those for us and unpack those for us in Matthew chapter 5. And then he comes to this section just on the heels of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 13 to 16. We're going to read that together this morning and then come back and unpack it. In Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A couple of days ago, I was out for a run in the neighborhood, um, in, the, in the neighborhood in which I live, which is just right here behind uh, Highview. As I was running along there, I just felt compelled and burdened on the course of that run to pray. And so I began to pray. I began to pray that God would let me finish the run without dying, right? That was kind of the first prayer. Uh, but the more that I ran and the further that I went and the more God began to really just kind of do some work on my heart, I began to pray for the people who call fate home, for the residents who have moved here recently or been here all of their lives, as I began to pray, as I was running through the neighborhood, I began to just look up and I began to see homes all around me, uh, homes that have been here for the last 10, 15 years and homes that are still not yet finished. There's still workers going in and out of these places. Some of these homes have, you know, all the stone facades and brick and cedar and all kinds of beautiful architecture to them. As I began to run, as I was running through the neighborhood and began to pray for the residents who call fate home and for the people who live in those homes or who will live in those homes, one of the things I began, God began to burden my heart to pray for was the fact that there are folks who live in some of these homes and externally everything for them looks as it should be. On the outside, they look like they have everything together. They're in an upward mobile area, upwardly mobile area. They're, they're kind of upper middle class individuals um, who have recently built homes or are building homes. And so externally, they may have everything that the world would look at them and say, man, that's kind of where I would like to get one day. But internally, some of the individuals who call fate home, some of the residents here, while externally everything looks like it's held together, internally they may be a week or a month or even a day away from everything being ripped apart from everything collapsing. And I began to pray, and it's as if God gave me this image as I was running along there, and I saw all these homes that externally looked beautiful in their architecture, but internally, it's as if God said, maybe some, inside some of these homes, it may look like a crack house. Right? Externally, everything is put together and, and well-presented, but internally, there are some broken walls in the lives of some of these people. Internally, there are shattered windows in the lives of some of these individuals internally there's stained carpet and ripped up flooring and rotting structure in the lives of some of these individuals and God just pressed upon me this great compelling burden to pray for those folks in our community who it looks like externally have everything together but internally they're withering away they're withering away as I prayed it was as if the, the, you know there's folks who live in these quarter of a million dollar homes with all kinds of, like they've got three car garages and 2.3 kids, right? I don't know where the 0.3 comes from, but they've got them somewhere tucked away in a closet. 
as I began to pray, God began to burden my heart. I want to see, I want us to reach into these communities and into these neighborhoods and into these families' lives with a pervasive uh, effect and to reach them with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I want, not only want to reach them, but there's folks who live within 10 to 15 minute drive of this parking lot who are living on dirt floors. Who are living in homes where there's no insulation and the winter winds blow through and they can feel them as they lay in their bed. Individuals who live 15 to 15 minutes from here who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And as I ran and prayed and ran and prayed, it's as if God continued to burden my heart that, there's, that Redeemer would be a place where both of those individuals who are coming from a, a place that looks like they have everything together and a place where people go, they have nothing together. That both would come to Christ, that both would be discipled, that both would be raised up, that both would be cared for, that both would be engrafted into a church that loved and cared for them. And then it hit me, as we think about long term as a church, being a church planting church, an ascending church, I began to realize that some of the individuals who may be church planters that we send out of here one day are currently living in this community but not yet converted. (laughs) They're not yet believers in Jesus. And that God would save them and he began to sanctify them and he began to grow them so that one day they would be sent out of this place as those with a passion for God and a love for people who would want to go plant their lives in a pocket of, of a community and see God's glory grow and expand in that particular area and people's lives transformed and changed. But they're not even believers yet. As I begin to pray about God, Redeemer being its namesake, having a redemptive presence here in this community where marriages would be restored, where prodigals would return home, where broken relationships would be repaired and healed, where the lost would be saved and brought into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, where nominal Christians who have just kind of floated from church role to church role to church role over the course of their lives, they'd be awakened to the glory of God in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit would spark off a flame in their hearts that would begin to burn brightly for him. That Redeemer would have a redemptive presence here in this community. But in order for that to take place, one of the things that we must do is begin to take our role as salt and light seriously. That we would would not only see it, but we'd embrace it. And we begin to embody it. And so that's where we want to go this morning in the text today. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, as we look at what Jesus says. If we're going to have a redemptive presence in this community... We're going to be a place where God uses to restore his image in those who have been broken and shattered by the effects and consequences of sin. Whether it be in respectable ways as those who are in upper middle class society or whether it be in the lives of those individuals who are now fleeing the statute of limitations for a crime they committed in another state and trying to ride it out here and living in rural poverty. There's both ends of those spectrum. If we're going to be a place that sees both of those individuals restored into the image of God, that we have to take this responsibility of salt and light seriously. And if we're going to do that, first thing we've got to do is we've got to know who we are. We've got to know who we are. Listen, in the text, what Jesus says to us is this. He says that as Christians, that we have a unique identity as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. A unique identity. In fact, the Greek pronoun there in the text is an emphatic pronoun. Now, some of you are going like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty cool. But an emphatic pronoun, it means this. It means that Jesus, there's an emphasis he's placing on something. An emphasis. So he's saying that you, church, you, Christian, are the salt of the earth. 
you are the light of the world. Emphatically, he's declaring that. In fact, the way the original language states it, it could literally be translated as you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. And one of the things this means is this, is that what Jesus is saying here in the text is this. It's not, he's not saying that it's, it's the nation's job or the state's job to be the salt of the earth or the light of the world, but it's the church's job. That you and you alone are salt and you and you alone are light. That it's not the job of any one particular nation, but it's the job of all of, all of the citizens of God's kingdom who are scattered amongst all the nations to be the salt and light. A couple of weeks ago, as we watched the inauguration of the 45th president of our, of our, of our nation, during the invocation of that inauguration ceremony, there was one pastor who stood up to deliver a reading of Scripture. And he read from this particular passage of Scripture. And he read from verse 1 down through verse 16 of Matthew chapter 5 as he read through the Beatitudes. And then when he got to this particular section in verses 13 to 16, the inflection of his voice changed a little. It heightened some. And he began to read about being salt of the earth and light of the world in a city on a hill as if... As if America was the salt of the earth. As if this nation was the light of the world. As if this country was a city on a hill or a lamp on a stand. But that is not at all what Jesus says here. It doesn't pertain to one particular nation or people. It pertains to a people who are scattered amongst all peoples of the earth. A people who live amongst all nations of the world. Right? Jesus isn't talking about American values and American government and Amer- American politics and American, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the way that we do life here in America, American democracy. He's not, that's not what he's talking about when he says, you are the light of the world, you are a city on a hill, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking about you and you alone, Christian, and church are the salt and the light. We have this unique identity that no one else can fulfill. See, there's no other civic or social organization that can move into this community that we call home here in fate and be the salt of the earth. There is no other social action agency that can move into this community and be the light of the world. There is no other nonprofit that can come here and set up shop and be a city on a hill or a lamp on a stand. That is the unique identity of the church. And if we're going to be a church that has a redemptive presence in the lives of people who call this community home, we have to begin to take that identity seriously. And Jesus says, first of all, you're the salt of the earth. So that as the salt of the earth, we are those who would deter decay. We are those who would deter decay. Listen, in in Jesus' day, when he calls us the salt of the earth, he's saying that the presence of true Christians in any culture, in any place, in any time, they'll have a preserving effect on that culture, on that society. See, salt in the ancient world, before it was a seasoning, it was used as a preservative, right? Because before the days of modern refrigeration, if you just kind of set meat out there, man, you didn't have long, right? You better kill it and cook it (laughs) and eat it. Otherwise, it was gonna go bad. But salt would function as a preservative to prevent putrefaction, to prevent the breakdown of that meat, to prevent the decay of that meat. And so they would take the salt and they would pour it onto the meat and they would begin to rub it in And it would begin to deter the growth of the bacteria that would cause that meat to begin to decay. And Jesus says, when he uses this image, he's referring to the fact that human society and human lives, both individually and corporately, from the fall, have had the tendency to move toward decay and to move toward the breakdown of society and the breakdown of life. 
Like, let me give you an illustration. Like, those of you who are in the room this morning and you're like, man, I'm, like, for me personally, I'm pushing 40, right? I'm, I'm staring at it straight. I mean, it's, it's coming like a train. I can see it. September 1, it's heading, it's heading my way, right? But, and, and the closer that I get to 40, the more I realize that, man, things just don't work like they used to, right? I don't recover like I used to. I can go out and run or I can go out and work in the yard all day long. And it takes like three days to recover from like hard exertion. When I was in my 20s, I was like, man, wake up the next morning, let's go again. Now there's things that have begun to break down in my body. Those of you who are pushing 60, you're like, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? Like you have no idea what's coming, brother. Because naturally our bodies tend toward decay and they tend toward breakdown. Right? From the time that we are born till the time that we die, we're constantly in this process of decay. And the same is true in societies. The same has been true in societies since the fall. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1 when he says this, as he talks about people who have rebelled against God and run away from him. And he talks about those who knew God to be true and, and holy and righteous but turned their backs on God and went the other direction. This is what he says in Romans 1, verses 28 and following. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. They sit around dreaming up bad things to do, Paul says. Disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give their approval to those who practice them. See, Paul says there's this constant spiral of decay when society is left to itself. Apart from God. And Jesus says, you, church, you, Christian, are the salt of the earth. You are intended to deter decay. See, even with this constant breakdown, the spiraling of culture into the, as it moves toward decay. Throughout history, when there's been times of reformation and times of revival within the church, you know what's happened is that culture has shifted. There's been a trajectory that has changed in, in, in the broader culture. But the way that it changed was not because there was a group of individuals who got together and lobbied for legislation. The way that it changed is because individuals' hearts were radically revolutionized and transformed and they came to faith in Jesus. They were converted and they were discipled by, the, by other believers who invested their lives into them. And then over the course of time, you had man, men and women, boys and girls who were coming to faith in Christ and their values were being put back together in the image, their, their lives were being put back together in the image of God. Their values now were reflective of the values of God. And so culture naturally began to change. It's not wrong to speak out for what is true. It's not wrong to speak out for what's right, but that's not the main way that we're gonna affect change in society and deter decay. It's gonna be whenever Christians begin to take their job seriously as being salt. And one of the ways that we do that, one of the ways that we do that is by inserting ourselves and penetrating the communities in which we live. Penetrating the communities in which we live. Right? Salt is, 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 is useless so long as it remains in the jar, right? If it stays in the shaker, 
Like it, it can sit on the table and it can be really pretty. You can have this really ornate shaker that sits there on the middle of your table, but until you actually take it and shake it and turn it upside down and pour it out, it is useless in accomplishing its intended effect. See, the way that we're going to live as salt in a decaying world is if we seek to penetrate the communities and culture in which we live. See, I wonder how many of us, and I'm looking at myself in the mirror whenever I ask this question, I wonder how many of us do more than show up on Sunday morning, go to a life group during midweek, and then spend the rest of our times kind of bottled up in our homes or quiet about our faith whenever we're engaged in conversations around us with people, people whose lives are spiraling out of control, even if you can't see it. See, Jesus says, you're the salt. No one else can do that. No one else can play that role other than the church to deter the decay of our society. And the way that the church does this is not by being the same as the world, but by being distinct from the world. Like you penetrate culture, but you penetrate with a distinctiveness about you. If you go back up into the Beatitudes, a couple of weeks ago we talked about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We said there's a difference between hungering and thirsting for righteousness and hungering and thirsting for happiness. We live in a culture that hungers and thirsts for happiness. So all their decisions that they're making is toward that end of how can I be happy? And we said the problem with that is the fact that you can never be certain whether or not you could be even happier. And so you continue to discard relationships for other relationships because you think that relationship can make you happier than the last one. Or you continue to sell houses and build and buy bigger, newer houses because you think that house is going to make you happier than the last one. Or you shut off this business and you start a new business because you think this business is going to make you happier than the last one. And so you're constantly on this ever-spinning hamster wheel searching for happiness, but into that kind of culture that's hungering and thirsting for happiness, it gets really salty when somebody shows up and the deepest desire of their heart is not for happiness, but it's for righteousness, for for justice, for holiness. So I'm not going to pursue every whim and every desire of my heart just because I think at the end of that road it's going to make me happy. I'm going to restrain those things by something outside of me, the objective law of God, because I know that at the end of the day, it's like sinking my teeth into a big slab of meat that's going to fill me. That's salty in a culture that's pursuing and hungering after happiness. And so we hunger and thirst for righteousness, but we don't do it in a vacuum or in isolation. We do it out and amongst people. When was the last time you pursued someone that you knew to be far from God? Intentionally, intentionally to be salt. And what would happen if God unleashed the 60, 65 people who call Redeemer home right now into this community as a salty kind of people. One of the things I think would happen is we would have a big cattle trough up here, (laughs) monthly baptizing people who've come to faith in Christ. 
We would have life groups that are being multiplied throughout our community and homes because people are being discipled. A couple of years from now, or maybe even sooner, we'd be sending out people to plant a church, maybe in Royce City, maybe down toward Poetry, maybe up in Nevada, because there are people who are coming to faith in Jesus and being discipled, and they're getting a passion lit in their hearts for the people who are around them to be salt and to deter the decay of their own particular local context. And they're saying, send me. That's just a few of the things. Maybe there would be people, families who are now separated, living under different roofs, who would come back together and there would be reconciliation in that marriage and there would be a legacy of faithfulness from that point forward. That, that excites me as your pastor. That's the stuff that fires me up as I run through the neighborhoods of this community and think about the people who call this place home. But not only did Jesus call us light, he also, salt, he also calls us light. He calls us light. He says, not only are you the salt of the earth, but you're the light of the world. See, when Jesus calls us the light of the world, he says that not only do we have a preserving effect in our particular communities, but we also have an illuminating effect in our communities. And so we're not only those who deter decay, but we're also those who diffuse light. We diffuse light. Now listen, you and I are not the source of the light. Do you realize that? <laughs> we're not the source of the light. In fact, Matthew in his gospel, before he gets to this point, already speaks of a prophecy that was given in Isaiah chapter 9 that was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus when in Matthew chapter 4 verse 16 he refers to Isaiah 9 and the fulfillment of the prophecy there where Isaiah speaks of the people who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who dwell in the region of the shadow of death, a light on them has dawned. And he's speaking of Jesus shining into their lives, coming into human history. Those who were living in darkness have now seen the light of Christ as it's broken through. And then in Jesus' own words, in, Matthew, in John, chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. That anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is the source of the light. We're merely diffusers of that light. Diffusers of it. Listen, in my home growing up in South Louisiana, my family in our living room, we had a bank of fluorescent lights that ran through the middle of the living room. Right, the big long bulbs. And under, between those bulbs and us was this sheet of like plexiglass. And that sheet of plexiglass had all these little small pyramids on it that kind of protruded out from it. And whenever you would hit that light switch there in the living room and those fluorescent bulbs would kind of flicker a little bit. You remember that? They would kind of, and then they would kind of come on. Maybe that's just me. So that, they, they would come on, but then they would, they, they, the light shone through those panels. It would pass through all those little pyramids and it would be scattered to the corners of the room so that as it was coming through that panel, it got diffused into the rest of the room. And listen, you and I are not the bulbs. We are the diffusers of the light. We have that privilege and that opportunity to diffuse the light of Christ into this particular community. And so what that means is that God has not put us here as a church for ourselves. He hasn't. He hasn't put us as a church here so that we can kind of show up on Sunday mornings and, and we can have some teaching and we can have some music and we can have some fellowship with people who are relatively kind of like us. 
but he's put us in this community to be a beacon, a lighthouse to diffuse the light of Christ through our lives into this particular city, into this particular county. But how do we go about doing that? A couple of things from the text. I want to point you back there. The first one is this. The first one is this, is that in order to be salt or to be light, either one, to deter decay or diffuse the light, it takes courage. It takes courage. Right? If you're gonna move into those places that are, that are filled with darkness and decay, right, that is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it takes courage to speak out against evil and to advocate for righteousness in pockets of darkness and decay. Why? Because if you go back up into previously in the text, Jesus says those who, are, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, eventually they will hurt because of it. They'll be persecuted on account of it. So it takes courage, but it also takes compassion to move toward people who are in darkness and in decay. So there has to be a, a real care and concern for the lives of those individuals. So it takes courage, it takes compassion, but not only does it take that, but it also takes us taking our Christianity out of the private spheres of our lives and bringing it into the public spheres of our lives. If you're gonna be salt or light, you gotta move from the private sphere to the public. For some of us, our Christianity, in order to be salt and light, has gotta come out of the closet. It's been buried in there for a while, and so we practice it on Sunday mornings, we practice it on Tuesday nights or Thursday nights or Sunday afternoons with our life group, but outside of that, it kind of stays buried and hidden the rest of the week. So we're not engaging and we're not, take, we're not courageously engaging in conversation with people who are hurting or who oppose us. We're not courageously engaging in conversations with people whose lives have been shattered and are broken. We're not compassionately moving towards people to care for them in their times of need but we're just kind of gathering in our little holy huddle. And if we're gonna be salt and light, it's gotta move from the private sphere of our life to the public sphere of our life. We have to begin to advocate for righteousness and for justice as opposed to standing back. See, one of the most, one of the things that we do really well as Christians a lot of times is that we stand back from the culture around us and then we begin to lob grenades over the fence whenever the culture begins to slide down, when the world begins to slide downhill and it begins to de decay. And we go, man, this non-Christian world is going to hell in a handbasket when we should be looking in the mirror and going, where have I been? As an individual Christian, as a church, where have I been? I'm supposed to be the salt. I'm supposed to be the light. And I see nothing but decay and darkness around me. Where have I been? It's gotta move from the private sphere to the public sphere. And listen, let me show you where I, got that from the, where, where I get that from in the text. It's in verses 14 and 15. Where Jesus says, what does he say? Not only you're a light of the world, but you are a city on a hill. You're a lamp on a stand. Listen, Jesus doesn't say you're a lamp behind a shower curtain. <laughs> he doesn't say you're a lamp buried in a sock drawer somewhere. He says you're a lamp on a table. He says you're a city on a hill. Listen, in Jesus' day, if you were to build a city on a hill, up elevated above the, 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 the lower lying regions at night whenever they took the oil and the wicks and they lit them and those lights would begin to burn to give light to those who were in the homes. 
If you, for miles and miles and miles away, it was very publicly recognizable that there was some, there's a city out there. There's, a, there's, there's civilization out there. There's light to see in the midst of this darkness that I've been groping in. And Jesus says, that's who you are. That's who we are as a church. See, individually as Christians, we may be lamps on a stand, but corporately and collectively together as a church, we're a city on a hill. So in the church, what the world sees is a counterculture. They see an alternative Rockwall County in the midst of Rockwall County. A people whose lives are shaped by the prevailing values of their heavenly culture and not by the prevailing values of this earthly one. In very public ways, not just in very private ways. Several examples as you push on into the Sermon on the Mount, we're gonna get there in a few weeks when Jesus says, he he moves into a section, we'll start next week where he begins to say, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said, but I tell, and over and over again, he goes through this, this, this language, this, phrase, this phrasing. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. Let me give you a few instances of what Jesus says this counterculture would look like in our culture. To live as a Christian counterculture and, or an alternate Rockwall County in the heart of Rockwall County. See, a Christian counterculture would be one where relational rips are repaired rather than discarding those relationships and moving on to other ones. Do, do, do you know what a, 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 a real Christian counterculture would look like if it were to be raised up within a church? It would look like people who don't discard relationships and move from church to church to church to church because they've kind of burnt through all the people in this one and so they're going to move to the next one and move to the next one and move to the next one. No, they're going to set roots deep And they're going to have their lives shaped by the gospel and the good news of Christ in such a way that they value people. And so they're going to move toward repairing those ruptures as opposed to discarding those relationships. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, anyone who harbors anger in his heart, it's like the seeds of murder itself. So some of that anger that continues to exist from unresolved issues in relationships and you just continue to burn through person after person, place after place. Instead of setting roots deep somewhere and reconciling and working through that and to the glory of God and the good of this community. In addition, a Christian counterculture that is light it shows a different way to live, that people don't have to grope in the darkness anymore. It'd be one where marriage between one man and one woman is honored rather than seeing spouses as interchangeable. Jesus is going to speak about marriage and divorce in the upcoming weeks as we take a look at what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And so instead of just kind of saying, you know what, do a little wife swap here, a little husband swap there, play a little interchangeable spouses, like, kind of like musical chairs, I was talking to somebody earlier this week and they were saying in a conversation with a friend of theirs at work, um, or, uh, they, were, they were talking about how, um, you know, they were, they, them, they were talking about a conversation they had with somebody at work who had had another conversation with another friend and talking about how they'd gone through their second divorces together. And then this friend was like, well, pff, man, we, we were there for each other, but I'm not quite as bad as that dude. He's on his fourth. <laughs> and when you think about the North Texas culture, it's one in which spouses are interchangeable. When, they don't, when one stops making you happy, you just find another. 
But Jesus says there will be fidelity. Jesus says also there would be integrity so that your yes would be yes and your no would be no and you would follow through on commitments. Jesus says it would be a culture that prizes purity over promiscuity and generosity over greed, that your treasure will be laid up in heaven and not on this earth and that if your right hand caused you to sin, you would lop it off rather than having your whole body, he says, thrown into the fires of hell. Jesus gets pretty graphic what this Christian counterculture would look like. There would be a city on a hill, a people who internally within the church, there would be a different way of seeing and valuing things than they are seen and valued within the prevailing culture around us. There would be light and there would be salt. And if Redeemer is ever to have a redemptive presence in this community, We've got to move toward people with courage and compassion. We've got to take our Christianity out of the private spheres of our lives and begin to place it into the public ones. And we've got to begin to live as this alternative counterculture that embraces a new way of living is defined not by our own internal desires, but defined by the external teachings of Christ. So that our lives become conformed to that. Listen, as we close this morning, here's, I'm gonna say one last thing. One last thing, and that's this. Is that for some of us, like we've, we've lived, I, I, I affectionately call it the Christian ghetto, right? We've lived in kind of our little Christian ghetto for so long where everyone around us thinks like we do, talks like we do, acts like we do, Right? We all go to the same Christian coffee shops and sip the same Christian lattes and listen to the same Christian music and watch the same Christian movies. We have really no idea of what's going on in the culture around us and we just kind of live within this Christian bubble with all our Christian t-shirts, right? We've been in in this Christian ghetto for so long, we're like, man, I don't want, I don't want to be salty. I don't want to be light. And there may be occasional moments where God might prick your heart and move you that direction because you see somebody in need. But listen, eventually, if you're only doing it for their sake, if you're only living as salt and light for their sake, that motivation is gonna wane, it's gonna fade. And so the, the motivation that we need to see and Jesus talks about to us about it in the text here is this, is that not only are we living as salt and light for their sake, But Jesus says we should live as salt and light for his sake. Listen to what he says at the end of the text we just read together this morning. Jesus says, not only are we living for the sake of those whose lives are in darkness and in decay, but he says in verse 16, in the same way let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, our ultimate aim is not just for conversions. Our ultimate aim is not just for discipleship. Our ultimate aim is not just for planting more churches. Our ultimate aim is not just to see more marriages restored. Our ultimate aim is not just to see more prodigals come home and relationships repaired, but our ultimate aim, the big target on the wall for us in living as salt and light in this community is the glory of God. It's the glory of God is that men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, 
from the youngest among us to the oldest among us in this community they, that we see the good works, the beautiful kinds of lives that we are living. There will be a beauty, an attractiveness. In fact, that's the word that Jesus uses there when he says good works. There's two words for good in the New Testament. One of them describes a goodness of quality. The other one describes a goodness of beauty. And he's talking about the goodness of beauty. They would see a beautiful, attractive life that is absolutely counter and upside down to the way in which the culture lives. And they would be drawn to that, not for our sake, but for God's sake. They would give glory and praise and honor to the one who was redeemed and rescued and saved. So it doesn't end with us. It doesn't even end with them. Jesus says it ends with him. And that gets me excited too. My prayer, my prayer is that Redeemer would live up to its namesake and we'd have a redemptive presence here in this community. And my hope is that the people in this room and the people who are at home with the flu and the stomach bug and whatever else is ailing them physically this morning, that we would embrace and embody this call of Jesus to be salty and to shine light into the darkness for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we are nothing but humble recipients of your grace and kindness. And God, that brings us to a place of gratitude where we are thankful. And Father, we recognize from the very outset of this series of messages that we don't have anything impressive about us, but you, God, everything about you is impressive. And Father, in our aim to be salt and light in this community, I pray that our goal would not to be to, to, engage people in a way that will make them think that Redeemer itself is impressive. That we would know as a church that we are not impressive. But that the people of this community would know that you are. Father, may you make us salty in a way that the people around us would look at what's going on in the life of this church as it spills over outside of these walls they would look at us and say, I'm, I don't know if I'm really sure I believe what they believe, but I hope they never leave because they're serving this community with such passion and purpose that for them to pull out would be a loss. And Father, may those who are groping in darkness, God, may we take seriously our call to be lamps individually in a city collectively shining light that is a beacon and they would see how life looks differently when living in the reign of King Jesus we pray in Jesus name in a moment we're going to sing together but before we do I just feel compelled to say this this morning that some of us in this call to be light 
One of the reasons you may be maybe going, I haven't really been very illuminating. I haven't really shown the light of Christ very well. I don't even know if I want to shine the light of Christ. And a part of it may be the fact that you've never, never really been ignited by him. Right in Jesus' day, it was oil and wicks. In order for the wick to cast a light, it had to be lit. It couldn't light itself. Maybe you've never been ignited. Maybe you've never crossed the line of faith and placed your trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Maybe you've never begun to live for His glory and not your own. Maybe you've always been pursuing happiness and not righteousness. Maybe this morning is that time in which you want to stop saying, stop defining how to live for yourself and begin to trust and come under the gracious rule of Jesus. And stop thinking that you're bringing anything before Him to impress Him. But look at Him and find Him to be impressive. Maybe this morning's that time in which you need to repent from sin for the first time and turn and trust in and treasure Jesus. Listen, if that's you, I would love to visit with you about that. It would make my day. And as we conclude service this morning, Brian's gonna lead us in song and I'll be back there in the back. I wanna invite you as you walk out this morning to come find me. I'd love to visit with you. Whether it be about Jesus and the work that he wants to do in your life, whether it be about this church and the work that we wanna see it done in, in the community. I want to invite you to stand as we sing together.